0: Let's open our Bibles tonight as we continue our study through my favorite book in the Bible, the book of Genesis, and we're going to look at chapter 6 tonight. Don't worry if halfway through we're done with two verses, we're going to make it, don't worry. <clears throat> so far we have seen in our studies through the book of Genesis, creation, spent three weeks looking at chapter 1 and 2, the fall of man in chapter 3, and last time the two lineages, one of Cain and one of Seth. The ungodly lineage that God really cuts off after seven generations. And then this godly line through whom Jesus will come. I think we've told you several times now, the Bible's only interested in two things. The first and the second coming of Christ, and you knowing him before you die, so that you can stand before him. Well, let's start in verse 1 of chapter 6. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men, that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit will not always strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. His days shall be 120 years. There were giants in the land in those days and also afterwards when the sons of man came in to the daughters of men, they bore them children. They were, they were known as the mighty men of, of old, men of renown. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great upon the earth, that every intention of the uh, thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Martin Martin Luther about, well, he was born in the 1480s, I think. But he wrote in in one of his his, uh, sermons, I'm afraid that our own universities may one day prove to be the gates of hell. That was pretty profitable or or prophetic, I think. It is certainly a place where uh, godless ideas are postulated and floated and passed along to our kids. The Christian kids we know that have gone to college have certainly been challenged for their faith, sometimes worse, mocked openly for their beliefs. Uh, One of the things that the colleges teach is something called uniformitarianism. It, It is one of those Important unifying aspects of the geosciences, if you've been to college. It was developed in the late 1700s, uh, suggesting that the catastrophic processes were not the explanation for the landforms of the Earth's surface as we know them today. Instead, that they were caused by a gradual and continual uniform kind of process of decay. Uh, to believe that, you would have to believe in an extremely old Earth. The idea, of course, was diametrically opposed to the beliefs of, of even that time period and certainly of, of our Christianity today that based uh, our understanding of the earth and its, its history on a biblical interpretation as God has given them to us. The word uniformitarianism, or just things that are uniform, if you will, was first introduced in uh, about 1830 by a guy named William Wellow. He came from the University of Cambridge and he, as a scholar, supported this alternative explanation for the origin and the development of the earth. Like I said, like Christians today, the, the world at that time in the 1830s, the prevailing view was that the earth was created through supernatural means, and that had the earth had been affected by a series of cataclysmic or catastrophic events, primarily the biblical flood, which is what we believe that... Uh, belief is called catastrophism. the The Scottish uh, Scottish geologist back in 1785, his name was James Hutton, and he 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 went to speak at the uh, Royal uh, Society of Edinburgh, and and he presented this theory that the Earth had a long history, and that you really didn't need a a catastrophic event to explain how the Earth's systems and and, and lands were developed. In fact, he he said, you know, if you can repeat uniformly what has been happening over a long period of time, the, the weathering of bedrocks over billions of years, then we can set aside these supernatural theories that would explain geological history. And so that's where the battle has been. And, and today, certainly, if you go to most universities, that is still being taught. Peter must have been a prophet when he wrote Second Peter. This is what he said. Knowing this first that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts and asking, where is the promise of his coming for since our fathers have fallen asleep all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. And then he said this, for this they willfully forget that the word of God uh, that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water by which the world then then existed, perished, was flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by that same word, are reserved for fire until that day of judgment and perdition of the ungodly men. So Peter recognized that even in his day, there was this cry of, you know, all things continue as they always have. It really was the the, the foundation for this uniformitarian kind of outlook. In a nutshell it was first century phraseology but Peter declared that those were scoffers that would embrace it and would hang on to it, and they would willingly forget, set aside, not believe, not even consider what the Bible has to teach. There have been two cataclysmic events in earth's history and its past. The first was its creation. The heavens and the earth in seven 24-hour days, God created it, fully mature, fully functioning, it was very good in his sight. The second, which we are going to get to here in chapter 8, was the universal flood that lasted 371 days upon the earth. Creation gave us the first earth. The flood gave us the second earth, the one that we know today. And that is the biblical verity for us to understand. Only a worldwide flood could account for the phenomenon that we see in our natural world, and can explain how even in a short period of time that these rift valleys could have been created, the gorges like the Grand Canyon easily carved out during that that year of violent water upheaval and water covering the face of the earth above the tallest mountaintops. We have some examples of that even, I think, in our modern age. You might remember the three separate uh, eruptions of Mount St. Helens. It produced sediments that were hundreds of feet thick. The first uh, eruption produced a hurricane velocity wind that blew uh, 25 feet of sediment out in one day. It was May, I think, 1819, May 18th of 1980. The third eruption created a lava flow that sent mud, hot mud, traveling down through the Tule River, diverted the river cut a 17-mile canyon that was 150 feet deep, and it happened in four hours, not in a billion years. They call that place the Little Grand Canyon of the Tule River to this day. The eruption sent ash 80,000 feet into the air, landed in 11 states, killed 20, uh, 57 people, knocked out and destroyed 50, uh, 47 bridges, took out... 1,800 miles of highway in various portions, and it all happened in six minutes. It knocked down 100 square miles of forest. So we have lots to go on, and the Bible does say that 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 which we know today from the landmass, from their formations, were accomplished by this judgment that we begin to read about here. Chapter 6 is really the preparation for the judgment to come. We have evidence of the flood in the, in the great inland seas around the different continents of the world. Uh, the Caspian Sea on the borders of Azerbaijan and, and Iran and uh, Kazakhstan and Russia. Turkmenistan is the largest, I think, inland sea in the world. Uh, it's hard to explain that that is there through the processes of uniformitarianism. The Black Sea found, uh, and others found in India and in China and in Russia. We have the great basins with shorelines that we can still recognize in our own country uh, with the Great Salt Lake, with the Bonneville uh, Salt Flats, the the largest, by the way, inland sea in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, Difficult to explain without a flood. In fact, you cannot use that theory that is taught by scientists and colleges today to make that an understanding. So the question becomes, was virtually all of the sedimentary strata laid down in the world by a single worldwide deluge in a very short amount of time, a year? Or is this evolutionary scenario of short-changed, uh, uh, acted over eons of T-I-M-E, time? The associated geological time charts went from millions to billions as they developed their theory. Uh, one of the strongest evidences for a worldwide flood is certainly the existence of uh, polystrayic uh, fossils. A out fossil is a single organism like a tree trunk that lands itself vertically. And because it is planted vertically, it passes through lots of geological stratum, uh, often passing through limestone and sandstone and, and coal beds. Some of those trees are 100 feet tall, so they ruin every bit of thought of it just kind of building up over time. This thing's stuck in the middle. Didn't know it was supposed to lay down flat, I suspect. Uh, Impossible to otherwise explain cross strata tree fossils except for a flood. And then there are the various issue of fossils themselves. Fossils don't form today on lake beds. They certainly don't form on the bottom of an ocean. Fossils normally uh, are formed only when a plant or an animal is buried very suddenly. It dies very quickly. It's buried under tremendous pressure and, and pushing them into the sediment Permanently. So every fossil, any fossil themselves are an evidence of the catastrophic event like a flood or a volcanic eruption that took place in the past. You may have heard, or maybe you haven't, if you're not interested in those kind of things, that you know there are these erratic boulders throughout Europe and North America that are just in the most unlikely places. They're called large boulders. They're transported miles upon miles from where they belong, and they can't, you know, they're not they're not native to these areas, uh, the most likely being a massive flood which swept across the continents. There's that glacier rock in New Hampshire, in Conway, New Hampshire, that is, it weighs, I think, 10,000 tons. It's like 30, 90 by 40 by 40 or so. Um, And it just kind of sits there. It's about the size of, or or, or it's about the weight of a large cargo ship just sitting in the middle of nowhere. There's a rock called the Mohican Rock you might have heard about in in Montville, Connecticut. Um, There's a rock in Warren County, Ohio, and on and on it goes. If you're an ancient history buff or you, you like studying cultures, in our world history, every civilization, at least the 35 civilizations that we have tracked for generations, All have an account in their history of a flood. The Aztecs, the Cherokees, the Aborigines, the Lolos in China, the Maoris, the the Nu'us in in Hawaii, the the Gilgameshes in Mesopotamia, the the Babylonian flood accounts, uh, all of them in lesser or greater degree talk about a flood that ruined and destroyed of these 35 most available and preserved ancient. Tribal legends, all uh, 35 of them talk about destruction by water. 18 of them say it was God's wrath that brought this to pass. 17 of them record that the people had been warned before it took place. 24 that the animals were spared. 32 of the 35 said that a vessel was used to spare some. And all 35 agreed that a family was spared by God and favored. Peter says in the world, these willfully have neglected all of these things to try to push their agenda because to do otherwise means to believe God and make yourself accountable to him. So such an impressive, important story it has been told and retold from the sources and over time garbled and, and changed, if you will, by culture. But, but tonight and for the next few two weeks, we're going to look at its source, right? Recorded in world history and in the history of nations, a worldwide flood brought by Almighty God. And so, as we read these first eight verses, it is is the background for what would lead up to this judgment of God to come that explains much about what we know about our lives, about our, our culture, about our lands, and about our earth. Jesus said, in Matthew 24, and referring back to this time, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. As the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they didn't know until the flood came and took them all the way, so will the days of the Son of Man be. Watch, therefore, where you don't know what hour your Lord is coming. So what we study, we really should be able to see our culture as we wait in these last days for the Lord to come. It's the comparison that he makes between this and your day and mine. Verse one, it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them. The Holy Spirit takes us back to show us this wickedness and we can't be sure how far back in history these events of these verses go, but let's just put it this way, there was a a population explosion. If you have an interest in studying this on your own, since we're just kind of moving through so much, may I suggest a book to you that was written back in the 1960s, but it was one of those hallmarks of of study. It was a book called The Genesis Flood. It was written by a man called John Whitcomb and Henry Morris out of San Diego. It's about 500 pages long, it's not a small book, but it is an amazing book, well-documented, give you more information you would ever want, and then some. I think we have it in the bookstore. We certainly were planning to have it for you tonight. In it, they take the genealogical records of Genesis 5, which we looked at last week, and using a a simple formula of averaging lifespan and childbearing years. Imagine the average lifespan was 910 years before the flood. I don't know how many kids and grandkids and great-grandkids you'd end up with, I suspect it would be a lot, but they took conservatively these 18 generations between uh, the fall of man and the flood, and they came up with the fact that there could easily have been 800 million people to a billion people upon the planet at this time. Now, that's a very conservative guesstimate. If, based on the average lifespan, if every uh, couple just had four kids and lived to see their grandkids, now, over 900 years, there would have been three and a half billion people upon the earth. In those 1,656 years between Adam and the flood, a, a huge population explosion because of the length of, of life. 1,656 years, or roughly six times as long as America's been around, a little bit more than that. But just to give you kind of a feel, how long after the flood did it take for us to get to a billion people on the earth? Well a long time, and the reason is the lifespan of an individual went from 910 to 110, to 120 after the flood, and by the time of David, about 70 to 80 years, which by the way, for most uh, developed countries, it still is today. So it, it took us until ni- 1804 to get to a billion people. It took us 123 years to 1927 to get to 2 billion. 33 years later, 1960, we hit 3 billion. 14 years later, 1974, 4 billion. 13 years later, 1987, we hit 5. 11 years later, 1998, we hit 6. Um, August 31st, uh, 2011, we hit 7. And the estimate is we we hit 8 million this year, November 15th. So, explosion for sure. But... In, in the days before Noah, the people lived roughly um, 12 times to 13 times longer than you and I can have a life expectancy. So the exponential. So where were the days of Jesus or the days of Noah? Well, you start with exponential growth. Lots of people living on a very small globe of dust floating around in space. How significant when we realize when when it was like in Noah's days, uh, so many folks yet he walked with God and and was sent by him to proclaim God's mercy and judgment to come. He was a faithful family, a faithful man in the midst of these many tens of millions of people. We also read in verses 2, 3, and 4 that the sons of man saw the daughters of men, took wives from themselves. The Lord's response was, my spirit won't always strive with a man Man's man's flesh is going to be 120 years. And as a result of verse 3, there were giants in the land in those days, and afterwards, when these sons of God went into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them that were mighty men uh, who were of old, men of renown. An event took place during this time that would warrant the destruction of all but a few. It was a great apostasy and a sexual liaison between demons and man that created a race of giants here called Nephilim. The word Nephilim in in Hebrew means fallen ones, a race of giants. God declared he would not allow this to go, verse 3, for much longer. 120 years, by the way, from this chapter, the flood came. After the flood, 120 years became the age of man or the average lifespan of man that then began to slowly uh, fall. I know that the verse is a little bit difficult to unravel. Sometimes when you run into difficulties with Bible verses, it's good to go back to the Bible and let the Bible speak to you about, in terms of of what it says. Uh, There are two teachings very prevalent on this verse, especially these three verses. The first one is that the fallen angels who cohabited with men created a freakish race of giants called the Nephilim. The other theory is that the Godly children in line of Seth, which we looked at a few weeks ago, married with the ungodly line of Cain, producing giants. I am sure of that the first. I am absolutely finding no support for the second. Every time that the term sons of God is used in the Old Testament, ben Elohim, it speaks of angels. And to further support that, the Septuagint, which was a translation of the Old Testament into a Hebrew, Old Testament into Greek, written about a 250 BC or so, translates all of those sons of God passages as angels. So here in Genesis 6, <clears throat> and three times you will read it in Job chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 38, where that term is used, in each time it speaks about angels. So if that is so, what we are told is that there were angels, fallen angels, that during this time came and left their first estate, got involved with women upon the earth, and created what was really a a race of giants that the Lord said, we can't have this, this can't last, if you will. Um, If you go to um, the book of Jude, here's what Jude wrote about this time. And the angels who could not keep their proper dominion but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of that great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah said is around them, similar to them, going after structural immorality and strange flesh are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. And Jude mentions that there were angels who left their place and they were involved then in uh, these sexual relations. And the Lord said, those angels are locked up in a place of judgment, the darkness of the judgment. And the word is tartarus. It's the only place it's used in the Bible. It speaks of a place where these angels have a particular holding cell for these who have stepped over, if you will, their bounds. Um, the word everlasting change is that word tartarus. Peter, writing in 2 Peter chapter 2, said this, But if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness, reserved for judgment, and if he did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight, a preacher of righteousness, bringing the flood on the world of the ungodly, how is he not going to bring judgment to this generation? But again, he mentions the same fact these angels that left their first state, and their judgment is found at the time of the flood, which is exactly where we're reading. One of the biblical supports for a a book that has the name of a person who wrote it but didn't write it is in the book of Enoch. Not suggesting you go read the apocryphal books, but uh, it does mention that in the days of Noah, the angels, the, the sons of heaven, saw human women, lusted after them, married them, had children, and giants with them. The perversion brought God's word of impending doom. Now, God in his mercy was going to send a preacher, Noah, to say to the world, Repent, turn, judgment is coming. The idea of mixing these two lines, the sons of God, godly Sethites with you know the daughters of men, Cain's descendants, cannot explain the issue of the giants, but demonic activity supported by Peter and by Jude certainly warrant these kind of drastic measures. Why does this happen? Well, it does seem because of where we are at in the Bible and God's word is, you know, it's its progressive. That Satan attempted to frustrate the promise of God to have the seed of a woman bruise his, bruise his head, saw the days of Noah characterized by an extremely active demonic activity and sexual perversion, contrary to everything God had said. And so God would have Noah preach and build for the next 120 years and then the issue, one last call to repentance uh, before the flood. Notice in verse 4 that these Nephilim, or these giants, gained a reputation of being mighty men of renown, powerful, and mighty against the Lord. You know, the enemy has always sought to step in the way uh, and stop God's promises. When revealed that the Messiah would come through Adam's seed, Satan through Pharaoh sought to destroy all of the male descendants in Egypt when revealed that the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah it wasn't long before 10 of the tribes stood against her and then there was the attack on Israel during the time of Esther where they tried to destroy every Jew or Herod in the days of Jesus ordering the death of the firstborns. In every case you see Satan's hand behind the destruction to seek to you know, oppose God's promises and it is certainly here 1656 years would be the time, but now, you know, 1500 years in, 1530 years in, we we find this attack again from the enemy. Verse 5 says Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So, besides a population explosion, besides demonic activity, besides sexual perversion was this pervasive wickedness in the hearts of man that only seemed to get worse. Every thought, every intent, every action on his part was driven by evil. So polluted was it that there was very, (laughs) it was difficult to find one good thing, if you will, about man apart from God. So if you sow to the flesh, what does Galatians say? From the flesh you reap corruption. If you sow to the spirit, you'll find eternal life. So this was a terrible time. The word for intent here is the word for f- uh, uh, what is the word it, it means to fashion as as in your imagination or in your philosophy. In other words, you, you have a mindset that just wants to to do evil. Everything that that drives you isn't good, isn't godly. It's all, all about the the evilness of sin in a man's heart. The word wickedness, ra, is the word means malignancy. It, it just means it, it's a sickness that doesn't go away. It just seems to, to get worse. Uh, and then you read verse 6, and, and I know it's a horrible chapter in many ways, but it, this is such a, to me a precious verse because it says that God was sorry and his heart was grieved. Grieved, by the way, is a word of love, right? It, it's the heartache when love is scorned or when the, those that you love choose a path that will mostly be to their destruction rather than their blessing. Learn from verse six this, God is not some aloof God who wound up the universe and then walked away. He was intimately interested in his creation. He desired fellowship with him. And just as you can today grieve the Lord by your lifestyle, you can quench his spirit by not walking with him. You can refuse his love, which he has towards you. His heart can be broken But for now, he finds few seekers upon the earth. In fact, he finds one family. So in verse 7, the fatal line between God's mercy and his righteous indignation is crossed. The race would be doomed. The flood would come. All would be lost. And then we read in verse 8, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This would be a perfect time to break your... English teacher's heart, and start a sentence with a negative conjunction. For in the midst of this population explosion, demon activity, sexual perversion, and increase in uh, wickedness stood a man and his family who loved the Lord and had found God's grace. I mean, he was one of a kind, wasn't he? He was one of a kind. He would preach for the next 120 years. He would have an illustration that grew, kept growing larger in his own backyard. And not one person, not one of the billion, who were three million, that billion that might have been existing, bothered to listen at all. Until the day that he went into the ark, they just, ah, I got a wedding to go to, and they were going to a party a little, little and then it started to rain, well, probably let up. Just fruitless in that way, but God reached out. He sought to bring folks to himself. I love the verse. What a contrast here. God has always had his man. He had Noah, he had Moses, he had Joseph, he had Elijah, he had Daniel. And as the world crumbles, God's people stand in faith. That's you and I tonight. We're called to stand in faith. Noah found grace from God, he found forgiveness, he found mercy. By the way, I think I've mentioned to you before, there's a biblical interpretation uh, mechanism called biblical hermeneutics. And one of the principles, isn't it a good practice, is that wherever you find the word used for the first time in the Bible, let that be your your first and your main uh, interpretation of the word. Well, this is the first time you find grace. is here in verse um, 8 of chapter 6. God had brought grace. Furthermore, verse 9, this is the gene- uh, genealogy of, Mo's, uh, of Noah. Oh my goodness. Noah was a just man. He was perfect in all of his generations, and Noah walked with God. He was just. The word means righteous. He was uh, perfect. Tamin is a word that means morally uh, having integrity to the full. In other words, nothing really lacked in his commitment to the lord in his generation he walked with god he was a man of faith when we read years from now when we get there in second chronicles 16 the eyes of the lord go to and forth through the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to him he fell his eyes fell on noah and he said this is the man that i'm going to use hebrews tells us in chapter 7 by faith noah being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with a godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household. By preparing that ark, he condemned the world. He became an heir of righteousness, just according to those who live by faith. So uh, his faith was evidence in his works. Abel showed faith in worshiping God as he prescribed. We've seen him already. Enoch walked daily with the Lord in preaching And the Lord took him, and Noah by his word and then by his actions um, became the witness to this generation that the Lord was good. There's a big difference between reputation and character. Reputation is what people think you are, what they see on the outside. Character is what you truly are on the inside. Noah had the same for both. he walked with God. He found his grace in his generation. So Noah centered his life upon the Lord. The word generations here is an interesting word because it literally means revolution of time as time passed, if you will. He walked with God like Enoch, his grandfather, had. We read in verse 10 that he had three sons, Shem, Ham, Japheth. Don't know where he got these names, but there you go. He was fruitful, didn't seem to have too many kids. At least these are the ones that the Lord wanted us to know about. We suspect these were all that he had bore. But by then the world would, uh, or through them I should say, the world would eventually be repopulated. Uh, we will see in, in chapter 10 and chapter 11 how all of the, 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 the people groups in the world came to be, where they came from, and how we are interrelated, and how they ended up historically in different parts of the globe. So we're going to see these boys again as we get to chapter 10. You can keep them in mind. But then we read this about this time. The earth was corrupt before God. The earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. we, We saw how it started, right? Adam and Eve fell. Cain killed Abel, the first human murder. We then have the record of Lamech. You might remember killing a young man in chapter 4 just for injuring him and threatening to do that to anyone else. By the time this murder, you know, uh, those murders have passed and we've gone 1,500 years into the future, murder is epidemic. The, the earth is filled with violence, um, survival of the fittest. In, in 2021, so last year, in the U.S., there were 21,570 confirmed murders or roughly one person got murdered every 30 minutes. We could read this of America today, that the earth or America was filled with violence in every way. That's what we're living with today, as it was in the days of Noah. Rampant, unending, welcome to the last days. But it was like that in the days of Noah. And God said to Noah, verse 13, the end of, the, of all flesh has come before me for the earth is filled with violence through them and behold, I'm going to destroy them with the earth. God reveals his wrath to Moses, his servant. The word the end is a Greek word that means to cut off. God had reached his limit. <laughs> Chapter six, verse three, God will not always strive with man. But to Noah, God gave a method of escape that would escape his wrath because God is a merciful God. So here's what he says to Noah. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark covered inside and out with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark should be 300 cubits by 50 cubits wide, and it shall be 30 cubits high. And you shall make a window for the ark, and you shall finish it to a cubit from above, and set the door of the ark in its side, and you shall make with a, a lower and a second and a third deck. Make rooms in the ark. The word for rooms in Hebrew is, is literally the word for nests. Cover it inside and out with pitch. Make it water-resistant. Seal the wood. By the way, pitch in the Old Testament is also the Hebrew word for atonement. Atonement. And the ark had a, had a window and a door, Noah was in charge of the window. God said he'd close the door, but he had to build it. So God gives to Noah a blueprint for the measurements of a, the building of this boat, a big, a big boat, which is good because Noah had never built one. So he needed all of the counsel that he could get. This was a huge undertaking. There were any, at least biblically, we've never read about anyone trying this no one knew nothing about buoyancy, I don't think, or Archimedes' principle. I don't know if you that, went to, to college classes. You know, Archimedes' principle says that, that anything either wholly or, or partially immersed in a liquid is buoyed, buoyed by the force that is equal to the weight of the fluid that it has displaced. So if the weight of an object is less than the displaced quantity, it floats. If it's more than that, it just sinks. And you can displace more water by... Uh, you know, where you hollow out portions and all, but needless to say, I doubt Noah was aware of all that. He just began to build like God said. How big is a cubit? Well, biblically, a cubit is about 18 inches long. It's it's the distance from your elbow to the end of your fingers, roughly this, right? That's a cubit. So uh, the distance uh, from your hand, from the finger to the thumb in the Bible is called a span. It's about the the length there. So the ark was 450 feet long, or half a football field long, uh, 75 foot wide, 45 foot high, three stories of 15 feet. The volume of the ark would have been 1.4 million cubic feet, or the equivalent of about 522 cattle uh, cars, if you will, on a train. Or if you want, you can put Uh, 125,000 sheep in there, which I think he didn't want to take that many. It is estimated by scientists, and no reason to dispute at least what they've come up with, that there would have had to be about 17,500 specimens to cover all the animals. Uh, Some of them would have survived, obviously, in the water. Uh, Noah would be told to take two pairs of unclean animals and seven pairs of clean animals for sacrifice, and then to house them for 307... Well, he wasn't told that it would take 371 days, as we'll find. It would have been the largest vessel ever built, recorded built, before 1800s. So, way to go, Noah. And in the 1800s, we started to build metal boats. But the ratio, very interesting, that the ratio even... Today you know, from a boat builder standpoint, provides the most stable platform on which to, to survive on water. Not the fastest, but the most stable. In fact, many military ships have the similar size and ratio. You might remember the Dreadnought battleships. They most closely resemble this, this uh, uh, proportion. So Noah was to build this ark as a way of escape from a very violent world and from the coming wrath of God, to make it out of gopher wood. Uh, gopher wood is, is cypress wood, if you will. Uh, from the ancient people, you know they made their coffins out of gopher wood or out of cypress because it's nearly indestructible. If you've been to Rome, you might remember that the gates of St. Peter's uh, lasted for well over a 1,000 years from the time of Constantine without any damage at all because it was made out of the same kind of wood. Um, I think... Uh, I think Edward the Fourth. I don't know, Edward somebody replaced them. I'll go with, well, I'll go with the fourth unless you know better. <laughs> I have no idea. So, seven pairs of clean animals, two unclean. You can read about those in Chapter 7. Um, wouldn't have to take all the birds, wouldn't have to take all the fish. Uh, could be di- dinosaurs died in the flood. There's, there's great debate amongst people as to whether they made it or not. I have no idea what Dr. Lyle's going to say. So I'll tell you, I think they died in the flood. He's going to disagree, I'm pretty sure, and that doesn't matter. I'll find out when we get to heaven, I'll ask. Yeah. But, but needless to say, here's the important thing about man and dinosaurs. They existed together, right? The, the, the fossils have clearly shown fossilized footprints of both found in proximity during the tame, same time frame, and it isn't like these guys who say, well, they passed away billions a year before man ever showed up. Verse 16: the the window was 18 feet all around the top of the uh, top of the ark, if you will. You shall make a window for the ark. You shall finish it with a cubit from above. Set the door in its size, and uh, make sure that it's second or 18 inches, I should say, tall along the top from the top, would, which would let a lot of air in, which I would suspect with all those animals inside you'd need, and maybe to gather some rainwater as well. The, the entry war was set in. It was huge, and uh, the Lord would, would close Noah and his family in. Verse 17 says this And behold, I myself am bringing the flood waters upon the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall take two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds after their kind, after of animals after their kind, of every creeping thing on the earth after it's kind. Would have been nice if he just left those off, huh? Uh, two of every kind will come to you, and, and, and you can keep them alive, and you shall take for yourself of all the food that is eaten, and you shall gather it to yourself. It shall be food for you and for them. And so Noah did according to all that the Lord God had commanded him. <clears throat> so God gives his word to Noah, and Noah, resting in God's word, begins to build. I-, I can only imagine how his sons felt and how that this project, you've had a project before, 120 years, let's go work on the old boat. Oh, you've got to be kidding. You know, how long could this take? The Lord said a couple of things to them. Number one, he said all those upon the earth would die. Noah and his family would not. Eight souls would be given by the Lord a covenant. A covenant. It's the first time we read that word. It means to make an agreement or a pledge. Verse 18, vital, vital. The Hebrew word is barith. It means uh, agreement and would become a platform. And I, I want to point this out to you because we're going to run into this quite a bit in the Old Testament. It is a platform of God's interaction with man that you can count on. Now, there are a couple of different kinds of covenants in the Bible. There are parody covenants. Parity covenants are, are, are those between like Abraham and let's say Abimelech. It's when two parties are equal in their agreement and they have equal standings. There is a surenti uh, covenant, which just means one is superior to the other. And God certainly with his covenants with men He's the superior one to us. So God will make several of them with his people like this until we get to the New Covenant in the, Old, in the New Testament when the blood of his son, which is unconditional, it isn't dependent upon you at all, it is entirely his work. Your, your job is to trust him, that's all. He does the saving, he does the dying, he does the suffering, he does the forgiving, he brings mercy. You just say, thank you very much. That's your job, receive what can I render to the Lord for all of his benefits towards me? The psalmist writes, I can, I can call upon the name of the Lord. I can thank the Lord for his goodness. That'll be the, the, the final really covenant, if you will, in terms of your salvation. So uh, notice in verse 19 here and to the end of the chapter, the survivals of the, of the species, they came in twos, male and female, so they could reproduce. Uh, they came after their kind. Noah did not need to go catch them. The Lord said, they will come to you. But Noah Noah did have to gather food for all of those animals. That the Lord didn't bring him. That would be his job, to gather food enough for a year. Verse uh, 7 of of Hebrews 11 tells us, uh, as we saw in 5.32, that Moses trusts... I'm going to do this a lot. Moses, by the way, is in the ark. You know that. I've taught that a lot. Uh, Tells us of Noah's trust in the Lord his action of faith, and he began to build this boat in his home by in Mesopotamia between the Tigris and the Euphrates, which would have put him miles from any ocean or river. I mean, this is an inland boat <laughs> without a hitch and without a trailer, and huge. He just built it in the middle of nowhere, right? Absurd? Well, it certainly brought the, you know, the curiosity of his generation But because of that, he was able to preach to them and share with them. For 120 years, Moses and his boys would labor, preach, search for wood without any boat-building experience, mocked by their peers year after year after year, and talk about waiting upon the Lord. It had never rained, ever. He was warned of things not seen as yet. So... Uh, I I don't know if Moses one time looked up and went, man, there's not even a cloud in the sky. This is 90 years now. The people of his day had a preacher to listen to and an ark to watch and a long-suffering God to be able to give them to repent. That is still true for the world today. You are preachers to listen to. We serve a God who is waiting, but time runs out, as it was in the days of Noah. So Noah preached for 120 years with an ever-growing illustration in his backyard or in his front yard. No one listened. There is not even a record of a raindrop to encourage Noah along the way. His preaching went unheeded. So don't be too discouraged when not too many people will listen to you, as it was in the days of Noah. Remind yourself of that. It's a tough time we live in. We love the... You know, I, I grew up in the Jesus movement. It was, it was almost easy. People came to your house to get saved, you know. We saw the dumbest movies and 300 people get saved. <laughs> Pastor Rowland, stand up, at, you know, Jesus loves you LA and talk about surfing and 500 people come forward, you know. What's going on here, you know, and then tell them about Jesus for five minutes. It was a time of tremendous revival, but it's not the norm. The norm is as it was in the days of Noah. Finally, before we we set this aside and and we move to the flood next week, and then Moses, uh, Moses man. I don't have no idea why I do that. I don't have any idea. Um, and then in chapter eight, the the deliverance of Moses and his family. Uh, I did that one on purpose, but it's okay. Or maybe I didn't. There's one more thing I want you to think about before we lay this to bed, if you will. And that is, look at the ark for a minute as a symbol of your salvation. It was invented by God. It was the only way to be saved from judgment. No other way would have worked. There was no other way out. Enoch, a picture of the church, was saved before the judgment uh, of of the flood to come by being raptured, by being taken. He was not. Noah, a a type of the remnant of Israel, would be kept by God through the tribulation during God's judgment as well. And we read about that in the book of Revelation. One day, a third cataclysmic event will follow creation and the flood, the burning up of the heavens and the earth, and the creation of a new heaven and a new earth. But that's future. We are close now to the Lord's coming. You want to be in the ark, you want to be in Christ and be taken from this world before that begins. As it was in the days of Noah, population explosion, every 10 or 12 years, we add another billion people to the plant. Demonic activity, I think you can see that with your own eyes, sexual perversion at its height, increased wickedness in the hearts of men, Violence upon the earth and unheeded unheeded unlistened to preaching And so you get to the end of your Bible and we read this come quickly Lord Jesus you live in a tough time but it's an exciting time to see what the Lord is going to do because Noah and his family made it Noah and his family made it and so will you and so will those you love as you go to share with them don't give up God is gracious. He is patient. You, I, I don't know what Noah lived with and how he had to deal with all of the, the pushback and all of the criticism. I'm sure he was on CNN nightly. They, uh, there's, cameras were outside just laughing at old Noah. But I think the last laugh didn't belong to Noah, but but the tears did. And we're going to be sad one day that we didn't reach out more because time runs out. God will not always strive with man. So in this age of grace, let's get busy, huh? Telling others about Jesus. We're running out of time. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, as it was in the days of Noah. Shall we pray? Father, thank you tonight for your word to us. How, how moving, how, how frightening, how How similar, Lord, it seems the days of Noah were with the days in which we live. That as 1,656 years and 18 generations passed from Adam and Eve's fall to to the judgment upon the planet, how quickly the fall of man progressed even to the point of no return how patient you are, how merciful you are, that there was grace available. It was available to Noah, and he found it. It was available to the millions, billions that lived upon the earth who refused it. And yet the judgment did come, but God was grieved and sorry that it had gone in that direction. He had better plans for man. His desire was fellowship and forgiveness and grace so lord may we take that message to this world this generation in these last days that there is a god of love and mercy and grace that judgment will come from his hand that he will have the last word certainly that all of the indicators around us every bible prophecy points to the fact that we are living on borrowed time maybe tonight you'll come or maybe tomorrow you'll be here for us But we certainly can see the comparisons, even tonight in one chapter, how it was in the days of Noah. People were oblivious, their lives being lived as if all was fine, and then one day it was not. But the warnings had been constant. May you send us out as your church, Lord, to family, to friends, to workmates, to schoolmates, to to neighbors, to vendors, to whoever we know. And may we share with them, Lord, boldly the good news of your Son and the sad news of our our plight, what we need because of our sin and where we're headed without Him. Anoint your people. May we be evangelists and, and may we be preachers and may we bear upon the mountains those feet bearing good tidings. Use us, Lord, in these last days. In a desperate world, may they listen. And may we not be discouraged? May we just be faithful. You've called us to to, to speak you you reserve the saving for yourself. We tell, you save. We point, you embrace. We explain, you move in by your spirit into the heart. God used us these last days. and if you if you're if you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus, Come and talk to one of the pastors before you go home and let us pray with you to be, to be, for you to be sure and for, for us to be encouraged that t- tonight God saved you from judgment and from yourself and from sin. And he's gonna do a work in you that you're just not gonna believe. If you're listening online, God knows where you live. And he's there in your room with you, sitting next to you on the on, on the couch or, or watching on your phone, wherever the Lord has gotten a hold of you tonight. He's available even near, even in your very mouth, we read. Just call upon his name. He'll do the saving. If you'll heed the message, he'll do the saving. He's a, he's a faithful God who wants to give you grace in the midst of these days like the days of Noah. God's grace is still available for you. Receive it tonight. In Jesus' name. Well, thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and rating our podcast. You can visit us on the web at MorningstarCC.org and on our YouTube channel at MorningstarCC. Again, that's at MorningstarCC. If you'd like to support this podcast, please look us up at patreon.com slash MorningstarCC. Again, that's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N slash MorningstarCC.